Good morning, everyone. We are Cantors, Elena and Sergei Schwartz of Temple Sinai of Roslyn. And I guess we are part of this glorious diversity army, most mentioned, maybe not that glorious, but we are part of diversity. <laughs> and it is our great honor to participate in this historic gathering and to welcome you to plenum, Zionism and Jewish peoplehood. We are sure that Rabbis Ami Hirsch keynote words echoing the heart of everyone here. We are also grateful to Rabbi Hirsch for the, his ongoing inspiration through his writings and podcasts. And of course, on account of everyone here, we would like again to thank Rabbi Tracy Kaplowitz, to thank Mark Anshan and everyone on the planning committee for organizing this incredible gathering of the leading minds of the reform movement at Stephen Weiss Free Synagogue in New York City. We were asked to share a little bit of our stories. So Elena and I grew up, as you probably can tell from my accent, in the former <laughs> Soviet Union, where practicing Judaism was prohibited. Our grandfathers grew up in Poland and were Holocaust survivors. Staying after the war in the Soviet Union, even during times of persecution and repression, they continued to practice some Judaism at home. And when I returned to Ukraine, in the late 90s when I was writing my Hebrew college thesis, I went into the synagogue in our home city of Dnipro, and to my surprise, an old man told me that my grandfather, David Schwartz, was all these years a gabai at this tiny synagogue. He was one of just a few people that knew how to read from the Torah, how to lead the service in a city of over a million. Although Judaism, along with all other religions, was prohibited, the Soviet government closed its eyes while keeping close control on older individuals who tried to retain Judaism as a religion, as long as they didn't share these teachings with the younger generations. In spite of this, we grew up with a very strong identification as Jews. It was what we call in Mama Loshan a Yiddishkeit. Meanwhile, while practicing Judaism remained prohibited in our homeland, American Jews, you, were fighting for our rights and freedom unbeknownst to us. On December 1987, a quarter million people gathered in Washington, D.C. on the eve of historic summit between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev they came to a rally aimed at freeing Jews in what was then the Soviet Union. This event in Washington, D.C. and everything that followed changed the destiny of over two million Soviet Jews. It changed our life and the life of our family forever. The persecution of Jews in the Soviet Union started with the policy of Joseph Stalin initiated in 1937 and was the state-sponsored unwritten policy till the breakup of the Soviet Union. Every Soviet citizen was required to carry an internal passport and under nationality, in the fifth line of the passport, Jews were required to list Jewish. But in 1989, the gate opened. It happened because the American Jews, the American Jewish community was united and relentless 
and exerting constant pressure on the government. In turn, American foreign policy elevated the freeing of Soviet Jews to the top of their agenda, and yes, the gate really had opened, and very soon in 1990, our family left the Soviet Union and made Aliyah to Israel. Well, the first years in Israel were filled with many challenges. Looking back, I can say that our experience in Israel made us the Jews we are today. Our life in Israel helped us realize that being Jewish is much more than just a fifth line in your passport. It helped us to form our new identity, proud to be a Jew identity. There in Israel we learned, among many other things, that our na nation never gave up battling for justice, fighting for the oppressed, and rescuing Jews from other lands. We were rescued by other Jews, by American and Israeli Jews. And for that, we're forever grateful. Israel never faltered in saving Jews from any place in the world where they didn't feel safe. And nowadays, as the greatest European conflict since the Second World War rages on in Ukraine, Israel is actively saving and protecting Ukraine's Jews. In anticipation of a massive wave of Aliyah from Ukraine, the Jewish Agency of Israel has launched its Aliyah Express, a special program that expedites the immigration process, resulting in thousands of Ukrainian olim arriving in Israel per week. Since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, we and the community of Temple Sinai of Roslyn have been assisting numerous families to escape the horrors of the war to come to the United States or to make Aliyah to Israel. On our two personal missions to volunteer in Poland, we also witnessed numerous American and Israeli Jews side by side doing their best to assist refugees from Ukraine, as proof of the statement that Kol Israel Aravim Zebazeh, that we are all responsible for one another and we are all part of Jewish peoplehood. The focus of our plenum today is the role Israel, Zionists, and Jewish peoplehood play in the continuity and future of the reform movement. We will discuss what needs to be done to strengthen our ties with Israel, amplify Zionism, and our commitment to the Jewish peoplehood. Before I present our presenters, uh, our panelists. Each of you has index cards and a pen in your bag. Uh, please write any questions you have for our presenters. When we begin the discussion component of this plenum, planning committee members will walk down the aisles to collect them. We will address as many questions as we can during our conversation. So please do that. And now it's time for us to present our um, plenum participants. First, Rabbi Joshua Davidson. Rabbi Joshua Davidson holds the Peter and Mary Calico Senior Rabbinic Chair of Congregation Emmanuel in the city of New York. He previously served as Senior Rabbi of Temple Bethel of North and Westchester, and Assistant and Associate Rabbi of Central Synagogue. 
A graduate of Princeton and ordained by HUCJIR, Rabbi Davidson's work includes anti-death penalty advocacy, LGBTQ inclusion, and interfaith dialogue. In 2009, he was honored for interfaith work by the Westchester Jewish Council and the American Jewish Committee. Rabbi Davidson chairs a partnership of faith in New York City and is a member of the HUC Board of Governors. HUC's President's Rabbinic Council, the Board of HUC, um, U, pardon me, UGA Federation of New York, and the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council. Previously, he has held leadership roles in the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the Commission on Social Action of Reform Judaism, and Rabbis for Human Rights. Rabbi Davidson was honored with the Corkin Family Fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, and Klal, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. His articles have appeared in publications including the Jewish Week, Commentary, the New York Times, and the Jerusalem Post, and he is a contributing writer in Rabbi Lawrence Hoffman's Prayers of Awe series. Rabbi Matthew D. Gewirtz is the senior rabbi of Congregation Nature Sharon in Short Hills, New Jersey. Previously, he served as a senior associate rabbi of New York's Congregation Rodef Shalom. He was ordained by HUCJR, where he also earned his master's in Hebrew literature. Rabbi Gewurz currently serves as a president of the Coalition of Religious Leaders of the State of New Jersey and a fellow and at the National Jewish Think Tank, Klal. He also serves on the Newark Museum Council and was a founding executive committee member of the Newark Coalition for Hope and Peace, an interfaith organization committed to ending gang violence. A regular contributor to numerous professional publications, including the CCR Journal, the American Rabbi, and the Wisdom Daily, Rabbi Gewurz is the author of The Gift of Grief, Finding Peace, Transformation, and Renewed Life After Great Sorrow, and to build a brave space, the making of a spiritual first responder. He appears as a commentator on, religious, uh, on religion on uh, MSNBC's Morning Joe and the CNN State of the Union, and was a triumphant on PBS, a matter of faith, with an imam, bishop, and rabbi from 2016 to 2020. Rab rabbi Terlan Rabizadeh is vice president for Jewish engagement at American Jewish University, where she directs the Maas Center for Jewish Journeys and the Miller Introduction to Judaism program. As part of her role, she supervises the Brandeis Collegiate Institute, the AJU Community Mikveh, and the Marriage for Life and Opening Doors courses. Ordained at Hebrew College Jewish Institute of Religion, Rabbi Rabbi Zadeh is thrilled to contribute her culture-merging sensibility toward creating meaningful and inclusive Jewish experiences at American Jewish University. She previously served as Director of Student Life at the University of California, Los Angeles, Hillel, and the Simcha and Sarah Lehner Senior Jewish Educator and was also a Jewish Emergent Network Fellow at The Kitchen in San Francisco, as well as a Milken Community High School faculty member. Rabbi Rabbi Zadeh 
holds a bachelor's in political science with a minor in Hebrew from Boston University and a master's in Jewish education and Hebrew literature from HUCJIR. Please welcome our presenters. Rabbi Joshua Davidson. Thank you very much. I am grateful to be with you all and honored to speak, really quite humbled to speak, and a little scared, <laughs> before so many colleagues, including those who have been my teachers and know much more of these issues than I do. Ami, what a gift you have given us just to be together, and thank you for your brilliant call to action. During my allotted time, I intend to reflect first on the challenges of being a liberal Zionist, to which many of us can relate, then the formative significance of peoplehood to religion, and finally what I perceive as the danger to both when the ember of faith separates from the fire that once ignited it. Much of what I will share appeared in separate articles in the Jerusalem Post and Haaretz. As a rabbi, I am a committed Zionist, not in a religious sense that views the land as a divine inheritance, or a nativist one that would exclude other peoples from sharing it. Nor do I subscribe to the brand of Zionism Otsma Yehudit proposes to elevate in government policy. Rather, I recognize the Jewish people's undeniable presence in the land of Israel for at least 3,000 years, Israel as the cradle of the Jewish faith and story, the necessity of a safe refuge for the Jewish people given our history and anti-Semitism today, and the simple fact that Israel is home to more Jews than any other nation in the world. As a rabbi, I am also a committed liberal, not in a political sense, but intellectually and socially. Rabbinic tradition, grounded in the Talmud was one of vigorous debate where minority opinions were diligently recorded and respected. Therefore, I endeavor to approach matters with depth of thought and openness of mind, prioritizing human freedom and dignity above all else. If the foundation of liberalism is the rejection of narrow worldviews, and the platform of Zionism is the necessity of a home for all Jews in Judaism's birthplace, then the cornerstone of liberal Zionism is the support of a nation built on democratic principles and one where Jews will always be protected and Jewish identity celebrated, precisely the aspirations enshrined in Israel's Declaration of Independence 75 years ago. But liberalism and Zionism have become a more difficult package to promote today. The liberal Zionist is challenged constantly to acknowledge competing rights and claims while fending off vicious rhetorical attacks on Israel's legitimacy as a Jewish state. What I say, whether I emphasize my liberalism or my Zionism, often depends on who is listening and what they believe. 
to a community, including many Jews, that questions Israel's claim to the land or the reality of the security threats under which Israelis live, I have one set of talking points. To a community that fails to recognize the dangers of Israel's turn toward religious nationalism, I have another. Last spring, an American Jewish Committee survey revealed that barely half of American Jewish millennials consider Israel important to their Jewishness, with more than a quarter acknowledging reevaluating their commitment to Israel in response to the anti-Israel climate on college campuses and in other settings, where there exists a tendency among some of Israel's detractors to conflate the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with other liberation struggles and implicate Israel's supporters in every societal injustice. But before we accuse younger American Jews of abandoning Israel, the living symbol of Jewish liberation, perhaps because they believe they must to be counted among the just, we should recall that they are not the first American Jews to demonstrate ambivalence toward Israel and favor universalistic aspiration over particularistic interest. Gathered in Pittsburgh in 1885, the Central Conference of American Rabbis declared, you heard it, we consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine nor the restoration of the Jewish state. A nation was tied to a land, a religious community could flourish anywhere. And having long since left the land of Israel behind, not only was the ideal of nationhood obsolete, they argued, it limited their reach and impeded their mission to support other peoples of the earth still struggling under oppression. But the argument, a conceit of Western Jews, newly citizens of religiously pluralistic nations, was flawed. It reflected the modern Judaism they envisioned and neglected the richer Judaism that had been. The term religious community hardly captures Jews. Potato Kool and Malawach are not religious. Neither is Ladino or Yiddish, but all are Jewish. A faith, a culture, an ethical code, a history, and a nation, Judaism comprises them all. It is, as Mordecai Kaplan explained, a civilization. Kaplan was inspired by French sociologist Emile Durkheim. Durkheim located the origins of religion in the collective effervescence of a group. Not individuals, but people already linked in close association. Peoplehood, he said, precedes religion. Kaplan, applying Durkheim's insight, believed that Jews have survived as a religious community despite continuous threats against us because we were first and have always been a people with roots in an ancestral homeland and branches reaching across the globe. Like Had Ha'am before him, Kaplan saw the land of Israel at the center with the Zionist enterprise nourishing a vibrant diaspora. For about a century, the vision was more or less realized. After the Tsarist pogroms that gave urgency to the modern Zionist movement, and then again after the rise of the Nazis, 
Even non-Zionist Jewish leaders came to recognize the necessity of a safe refuge for European Jewry and dedicated their communities to supporting the Yeshuv, a shift reflected in the CCAR's Columbus Platform of 1937. Israel's declaration of statehood and victories in its 1948 and 1967 wars were moments of pride for world Jewry as the Jewish state became the embodiment of the Jewish people's resilient spirit. Diaspora Jews lovingly planted trees in its soil, symbolically rooting their religious identity there. But as the decades have passed, as Israel has grown stronger and less dependent on the support of Jewish communities the world over, political tensions have strained the Israel-Diaspora relationship. Kaplan, who lived to see not just the state's founding, but also its early successes and failures, lamented the way Israel's leaders, beginning with Ben-Gurion himself, paid insufficient attention to diaspora life. By emphasizing Aliyah, and by ceding religious leadership to Israel's Orthodox parties, they disregarded the diaspora rather than working to keep it engaged and connected. For American Jews, this is no less our concern today. We too face very real questions about the strength of Jewish peoplehood, our duty to the Jewish state, and its responsibility to us. I would argue this to be the crisis confronting American Jewry. Certainly we are alarmed by rising anti-Semitism, but that should be the nation's concern, and the current administration has taken a major step to make it that. I believe at this moment in history, the most significant questions confronting American Jews, despite the steadfastness of religious and political conservatives who represent a minority among us, the most important questions are whether we still consider ourselves a people and whether Israel, where more Jews live than any place else, still matters to us or should. Israel's coalition system has for more than a decade empowered increasingly illiberal figures whose ambitions for Israel's future diverge radically from its declaration of independence. But no government has concerned us like this one. To this gathering, I need not rehearse the dangers of the bill curtailing judicial review, its threat to the civil liberties of all Israelis, or how other coalition proposals imperil members of the LGBTQ community, Jews who do not measure up to halakhic standards, or the Palestinian people's own national aspirations. Our Jewish commitment to justice demanded that we protest, and we have. The government needs to know that the world is watching, not just the United Nations, which is always watching and waiting to condemn, but us, the West, the United States, and specifically American Jews. Whether or not the coalition cares is another story. In so many ways, it too has spurned the diaspora, widening a divide that predates its own rise to power. When one Israeli government after another vests authority over religious life in ultra-Orthodox parties who deny the legitimacy of any form of Judaism but their own, that sends a message to the majority of American Jews who are not Orthodox that we don't matter. Many American Jews threw up their hands long ago. But as I remind my congregants, 
We have witnessed governments in America, Democratic and Republican, with which we have disagreed vehemently, but we have never walked away. We have advocated and lobbied, rallied and protested. Often we have worked through non-governmental agencies to enact policies reflecting our values. In Israel, too, countless NGOs are laboring to alter the course the current government is steering, fighting for women's rights, the release of marriage from the grip of the Rabbanut, modern educational opportunities for yeshiva students, and religious and civil liberties for all Israelis. We must support them. We may feel angry, alienated, even demoralized, but we are not going to give up on a dream that took 2,000 years to realize. Perhaps one does not fully appreciate the importance of Israel to Jewish survival until one has endured the type of anti-Semitism we're now experiencing in America. But ask European Jews what the fact of Israel means to them, or Argentinian Jewry, or Russian Jewry. Our commitment to Israel is the very litmus test of our concern for Jewish peoplehood. But, but sadly, our concern for Jewish peoplehood is waning. Studies show that American Jews in their 30s and 40s feel less connected to and less responsible for the well-being of world Jewry than their parents, and our attachments to other American Jews are weakening. In the last 50 years, Synagogue affiliation plummeted from 70% to 30%. And though the number of Americans self-identifying as Jews has climbed from 5.5 million in 1990 to 7.5 million today, congregations are merging, non-Orthodox movements are shrinking, and the number of rabbinic students is declining. I know how our movement's leaders toil to address these challenges. But this is what I believe happens when religion becomes divorced from peoplehood, when an ember separates from the fire that once ignited it. We must reverse the trends, and we can. Jewish institutions can raise the priority of world Jewry in their teaching and their giving. Congregations which daily connect Jews with one another can link them not just to those within their own walls, but to communities around the country and the globe. And our Zionist education can introduce Jews to the diversity and richness of Israel beyond its fraught politics, though those politics certainly cannot be ignored. Responding to the Pittsburgh platform, in 1935, Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver declared, it is the total program of Jewish life and destiny which the religious leaders of our people should stress today. The religious and moral values, the universal concepts, the mandate of mission, as well as the Jewish people itself and all its national aspirations. That is what we must do. But we will need help from Israel, just as Kaplan taught. Israel must recognize that diaspora Jews count. If their democratic values are flouted, if they are repulsed by the treatment of the Palestinians, if non-Orthodox Jews are not granted equal rights in Judaism's birthplace and homeland, 
their support for Israel will further wane, and they will, as many of America's early reformers did, tear away the branches from the root, and that will be as damaging to Israel as it will be to us. Thank you. To save uh, time, I will just say ditto to my dear classmate. I didn't mean the whole thing. I just meant the uh, gratitude expressed and the daunting privilege it is to be here. And indeed, thank you to Ami and to Mark and to Tracy and the committee to uh, inviting us here. We have to stop using the word uptick. It's not. It's an exponential proliferation. It recently visited my bubble in suburban New Jersey. It culminated on a bat mitzvah bus. A group of middle school boys doused a group of Jewish girls with water, attempting to replicate the chambers, yelling, gas the Jews. Apparently, this incident acted as the crescendo of a period of verbal attacks. And to boot, for weeks, these boys creatively printed receipts from suburban parking meters, replacing their names on the printouts with hateful language, kill the Jews, happy birthday, Hitler, chance of we live in Jewtopia. We are still in the midst, working with the ADL and the AJC, politicians, school administration, and the Interfaith Clergy Association. My colleagues and I have spent scores of hours with hundreds of students and parents. One image stands out. I was sitting with a group of about 30 seventh graders, Jewish seventh graders. After a few moments of awkward teenage silence, a sensitive and brave student asked, Rabbi Matt, I know this is sort of weird to ask, but can you explain more of what the Holocaust actually was? I asked how many felt the same, and 90% of the other students' hands went up. I was flooded with guilt and with shame. How is it possible they did, that they didn't know? I've been their rabbis their entire lives. I didn't have the luxury of time to assess my own failings. They continued with innocent curiosity. What were the gas chambers? How could an entire society allow it to happen? How many children died? And then the wise and searing question, Rabbi Matt, if we don't understand what the gas chambers were, do you think our Christian classmates understood what they were saying on the bus that night? The parents joined an hour later, blame vivid in their eyes. It's true, COVID made it impossible to teach anything besides enough Hebrew to get our kids to the B'nai Mitzvah, well, finish line, start line. It's true we only get these kids three hours a week and they show up for lucky 70% of the time. And it's true, I told them, there is plenty of complicity to go around. Synagogues are certainly not the only place where Jewish identity should be cultivated. Jews are made Jewish in their homes. 
where conversations about the world have to happen, not chancing it to TikTok alone. I am not here to talk about anti-Semitism, but I share this story because the parallel applies. Over the past two decades or so, a phenomenon has taken place, like a leaky faucet to which we didn't pay proper attention. First, we were shocked, then we derided, and then we started to split over the situation, over the question of our homeland. The matter, I think, is generational. Look around this room, and most of us are close enough in age to have been raised about the same. We lived closer to an overt Zionist narrative than Jews 40 or younger, and I'm offending the five of you who are below 40 in this room, <laughs> and the rest of you just have gotten to look older faster, but I don't think that's the case. The importance of Israel was in the air we breathed. Israel lived vibrantly in my own household. My dad was barely born here with the Holocaust shadow over our home always. My mother was as anti-Vietnam as one could be in the 1970s, and yet she insisted that I would never fight in Vietnam if there was any place I was gonna fight. I would hoist that gun and it would be and for Eretz Yisrael. Indeed, I was told of the stories of the bravery of 1967. I remember my home rabbi, Rabbi Harold Saperstein's sermon, in which he proclaimed that he would fast 11 consecutive days for the Israelis killed in the Munich massacre. And just months later, my same dear rabbi announcing the horrific news of the surprise attack on Yom Kippur. A few years later, when Anwar Sadat had the courage to fly to Tel Aviv, and meet the equally brave Menachem Begin, I was nearly, I was the nerdy 13-year-old reading every headline, waiting to see with bated breath what was to come of Camp David. My narrative, like so many of yours, was punctuated by Entebbe, Russian and Ethiopian immigration, Oslo, Intifada, life-changing years on kibbutz and for many of us at HUCJAR, and of course, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. We grew up with Israel as part of the fabric of our beings. I love America. I love the freedom and privilege living here has afforded my family and me. But I don't know how else to describe my love for Zion than to say that I feel like I'm cheating on a relationship for living here and not there. It is only my love for the American Jewish rabbinate that has kept me here. When most of us grew up, Israel may have been in constant peril, but the one thing we had simultaneously is we lived a fairly unified narrative. Something changed. While Israel gained enormous power, we here in, Israel, we here in the United States, excuse me, started to settle into our assimilated reality we taught our children, rightfully so, the full spectrum of Jewish values. Namely, we fervently taught that we were to fight oppression everywhere and for everyone. And when we taught Israel, we did teach about the miraculous Zionist dream, but we never took the time out to examine the dirty work involved to maintain a homeland. 
The territories under both left and right governments continue to grow, but most of us assume that one day the land would be used as a bargaining chip for our ultimate goal, for peace. And then our children went off to college, caring about Israel, but were equally committed to fighting oppression. They got to campus and found a different story from the one in which they were raised. They found Israel described as more David and less Goliath. They were showed pictures of Palestinians in refugee camps, hopeless and desolate. We didn't take the time to explain the complexity of the situation, the layers of attempts to make peace with an unsure partner, many of whom still wanted to push us into the sea. We always fell back on the phrase, and we always do it, it's so complicated. But we didn't take the time to unpack the complexity. We assumed that kids were just being kids. Surely they would come around and see the Zionist light, wouldn't they? And so our children came home to argue with their parents and their grandparents. They would yell, why should we support Israel when she acts so badly against other people? We are safe here in America. Why should it matter if Israel exists at all? And I'm not just speaking of kids who don't know anything. I'm speaking about our own children, children who were sent to Israel on nifty and congregational trips, kids who were shul kids, kids who were Israel kids. How did most of us react? With disbelief, with dismay, with anger, with resentment. They came home and questioned Israel, and they were confronted with their new campus arenas. I have to tell you that I've never, ever experienced those kids as apathetic. That wasn't their issue. In fact, they were passionate. But their passion manifested in ways that were simply unfathomable to us. They cared, but they wanted answers that squared with the Jewish education that we gave them. Instead of sitting with them and hearing their hurtful words, we wagged our fingers at them and told them how wrong they were. We told them not to stick their, kick their fingers in the cookie jar, and at the same time, we opened Pandora's box. I wonder if we'd spent enough time allowing them to fume, if we could have helped them in turn understand the nuances. We told them they just had to love Israel without explaining to them the Zionist warts. Indeed, since the Iran agreement and since the moment that we allowed Prime Minister Netanyahu to speak to Congress during an election season, Israel has become more complicated and has split American Jewry. We have raised our children in a state of confusion and have fed them simple answers to complex questions. Some of us are now scared to preach words of truth from our pulpits because we fear for our jobs. We somehow believe that we can't tell the whole truth because now the haters will be proven true. Why can't we tell the truth that even Israelis are now teaching to their own children in schools? Why can't we tell the truth about the mistakes we made, about making painful decisions that nation states sometimes have to make when, of course, defending their lives? Why can't we differentiate our homeland steadfastly, loving our homeland steadfastly, while acknowledging that we haven't done it all right? Why can't we say out loud that we have been forced into a situation in which there are hundreds of thousands of people in our control living in squalor. 
Honesty with ourselves and our children can lend itself to a stronger sense of support for Israel. We have played too long to the blacks and whites while the story long ago became one of the greys. And this makes for a real quandary for our movement. We are accused of meeting our movement from all sides of acting too sympathetically to those who critique Israel. We are accused that we are aiding and abetting the haters. We are told that we are more committed to social action as the cause rather than commitment to our homeland. I will tell you, and I hope this is incendiary, I think that's too easy a judgment. It's too easy an assessment. If we're going to bring our children along, we're going to have to wag our fingers less and enter into open dialogue more. We're going to have to listen carefully so we can help them see the entire picture. Our children didn't grow up with the narrative we did, and we have to help bring them along, and we're going to have to dig deeper. Our movement leaders are the last thing in the world I'd ever call our movement leaders. They are not anti-Zionist by any stretch of the imagination. Of course, they have missed the mark like all of us have missed the mark on certain fronts. But to attack one another, instead of really listening, what we're doing is we're actually, in turn, just creating more discord. Indeed, our political leaders have picked up on the cracks in our community and they have moved in for the kill. There are anti-Zionists on both sides of the political aisle. But instead of being committed to ridding our respective parties of such behavior, we become their political pawns. We accuse each party of being more hateful than the other while playing our, into the hands of politicians who are actually, I think, more invested in their own intoxication of power in gaining more votes than they actually care about the thriving state of alive Israel. We have created purity tests, purity tests here that have proven to break us apart more than to create that front in both being unabashedly Zionist and unabashedly honest. Unabashedly Zionist and unabashedly honest. The days of saying that we don't have a say in what happens in Israel are over. Jews in Israel are intertwined, and we should figure out fast how to heal our wounds here because our brothers and sisters need us so badly there. We can love the virtues of tikkun olam and not make those values religion itself. And at the same time, we can steadfastly support Israel while creating spaces where we can bravely talk about the whole spectrum of our imperfections. I was lucky enough to spend part of my sabbatical this winter, January, in Jerusalem. Like all Israelis, within weeks I became close to my landlords, my Airbnb landlords. <laughs> Started to have coffee together and talk about all facets of life together. And on my last morning, she said, what are you going to tell your congregants when you get home about what's going on here? I was there for the very first demonstration that first month and watched it grow. And I said, I don't know. You tell me, what should I tell them? And she said, you should stop sending us money. You should stop supporting us. And I said, I don't understand. How are we going to differentiate at home the difference between that and BDS? And she said, you all have to be smarter than that. They're anti-Semites. You're not. If the judicial crisis of the past months has taught us anything, 
It is that Israel does need, does need Jews there, here, and everywhere to do what? To open our mouths wide and find a way to stand four square behind our homeland while also being brave enough to tell the truth. Otherwise, we will make our physical and spiritual selves so porous and so weak that we will end up open to the enemy just like we were 2,000 years ago and we all know how well that went. We haven't lost our kids yet, but we do stand at an inflection point. How we speak to each other, how we speak to our children, how we speak to our congregants, and how we speak to our enemies will say everything about Jewry in America and in Israel as well. Thank you. Boker Tov, everyone. It's still Boker, isn't it? Uh, and um, thank you for coming together and setting aside a couple days to discuss a very important topic, Israel. I've given my, my talk with you today a title, Why Does Israel Matter Anyways? Or as some of my students would probably rephrase it to read, Does Israel Even Matter Anymore? It pains me to realize that in so many ways, I have come here today to ask all of you to reflect on how did we even get here to this point in time for me to be standing in front of all of you asking us to brainstorm together how best to explain to our youth about the relevancy that our Jewish homeland has for us today. But it's not their fault for asking why Israel even matters anymore. It's our fault that they don't already know why. And I have to be transparent that when I was first asked to speak at this plenum, I had no idea why I was sought out. I even asked Mark Anchan, who has been amazing at helping put this conference together, by the way, along with Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Kaplowitz, I asked him, why? Why was I even chosen to speak? I guess after all, in my own head, I've done a really good job of not speaking about Israel. Because not speaking about Israel wasn't just the easier choice to make, but often it felt as if I had no other choice in most spaces. But I also want you to know that I wasn't always like this. In fact, I was naive most of my life. I thought all Jews felt about Israel like I did. You see, I was born to immigrant parents. I am the first generation to be born in the United States. My parents and my family fled their birth country of Iran in 1979 after the Iranian Revolution when Islamic fundamentalists took over as the new regime. For thousands of years, Iranian Jews lived in the diaspora after the destruction of the Second Temple. When Jews were dispersed all over the world, my family, my community, can be traced back to living in the Persian Empire from the reign of Cyrus the Great. When I read about the establishment of the reading of the Torah by Ezra and Nehemiah, I have pride, I do, that my ancestors were part of that history. Or when we celebrate and read from the Megillah dedicated to the famous heroine, the Persian Queen Esther, that's part of my story. 
Iran had over 80,000 Jews, maybe more, the census is inaccurate, living in the country before the revolution. Today, less than 8,000 are left. My own family escaped in 1979 in different ways. My great aunt was stuck in Spain for a year with my great grandmother before eventually making it to the United States safely. My other great aunt escaped like a thief in the night with the help of villagers on horseback through the mountains of Pakistan before arriving to Italy and then eventually to Los Angeles. Today, Los Angeles is home to the largest concentration of Iranians outside of Iran, and it has come to be affectionately known as Irangelis or Tehrangelis. But the truth is that not everyone was so lucky to escape, at least not right away. My own paternal grandparents were deemed by the new Islamic Iranian government as Mamnul Khuruj, unable to leave the country and in lockdown. They eventually escaped. But generally speaking, people with substantial financial means usually escaped illegally, or they had to give up all of their possessions in order to leave. Many Jews were accused of being spies for Israel. By the way, many Jews who still live in Iran today are faced with the same crime just for being Jewish. My great aunt remembers planes from Israel, El Al flights coming in during the revolution, and packing in Jews to the brim before taking off. Israel helped the Iranian Jews, who didn't have means, who didn't have the money to leave, and start their lives anew. Was it ever on the news that Israel swooped in? She once asked me rhetorically at Shabbat dinner. Of course not, she responded to her own question. But I saw it with my own eyes, she said to me. So that was a story I was fed as a kid growing up. We are Jews, and because we are Jewish, we have always migrated from place to place, but Israel is our home. So it must come to no surprise to all of you that when it came to enrolling me in school, my parents sent me to a private Jewish day school and high school. Stephen S. Wise, not this one, the one in LA. I loved Hebrew classes, especially with my Israeli teachers. They would make Judaism magical. I remember one of the teachers explaining manna to us and how it was given to the Israelites in the desert. You know what manna is? Anything you want. You want a burger? Mana was a burger. You wanted chocolate? Mana was chocolate. Anything you wanted, that was mana. We learned songs like Leshana Habaa or Shilamasa about the Ethiopian Jews who walked on foot to the promised land with babies crying and mothers exhausted, but they kept their hopes and dreams alive knowing that they would be home soon. We also learned modern songs like those by Lior Narkis or Sarit Haddad. I understood my Jewish identity because Judaism came alive in those classes for me. I once asked my dad why he chose Stephen Wise. He said, well, firstly, it was close to our house. <laughs> but I liked that they had modern Hebrew instruction every other day. I wanted you to learn the meanings behind the prayers and the Torah and the laws and to translate it for yourself. 
I didn't want to send you to a school where you would come home and tell me my balsamic vinegar wasn't kosher. I got enough of that growing up with my own parents. I always remember that conversation and his response because most Jews from Middle Eastern countries don't really know what Reform Judaism means. They're just Jewish. And Judaism is more like a spectrum when it comes to observance in my community. In other words, when you go to synagogue on Shabbat, you sit separately with a mechitza, men and women. And then afterwards, when you leave the religious sphere, you can do whatever you want. Go shopping, grab a lunch at a restaurant, watch the Laker game. For Persians, the word reform was just a relaxed type of Judaism, a Judaism that would give their daughter, as well as their sons, a Jewish education, without strict halachic judgment. And growing up, I also didn't know what reform was. I remember one time I saw my great uncle praying, and I sat beside him, and he asked me to chant the Amidah. Show me what they teach you in school, he said. And so I started chanting. I heard him giggling in the background, and I thought I must have mispronounced a word incorrectly and that he was being a stickler. But no, it wasn't until much later that I realized he must have been laughing because I was singing the Imahot. Elohe Sarah, Elohe Rivka, Elohe Leav, Elohe Rachel. I didn't know that wasn't the original. I was sitting on the woman's side in the machitza. <laughs> and he had never heard it either. I was just repeating what the teachers taught me. I didn't even know there was a different kind of Judaism. I didn't even know we were different, I swear. And I share that with all of you because I want you to know that on some level, most Jews outside of our reform, Ashkenormative, American grooming don't know that we've changed Judaism. I mean, they know, but they don't know exactly what we've done. And I'm not going to dwell on that here but it is related to the Israel topic. Because in many ways, Kalal Yisrael means being able to traverse the different kinds of Judaism from around the world. And because of the decisions that Reform Judaism has made, we have now become a splintered type of Judaism, different from the rest. I remember when I was working at Temple Emmanuel of the city of New York, my boss. One of our high school alumni came back from college and was upset that I hadn't taught them that not all Jews stand for the Shema. For those of you who don't know, this is a classical reform custom to stand for the Shema. I didn't. But not only that, he was so confused that after a lifetime of attending a Jewish school, he didn't feel like he could follow along in the Sidur with his friends in college. And I remember Saul Kaiserman, who was the director of the school at the time, and I worked together to address this, and we did. Rabbi Rina was with us. And this happened with other students, too, when I was working in Los Angeles. Rabbi, one student came to me. How could you not teach us about Sabra and Shatila, about the massacre that we were a part of when it comes to Israel history? I didn't have an answer. Well, not a good answer, at least. It wasn't in the curriculum. Fast forward to my time as the director of Hillel at UCLA. Students didn't know how to talk about Israel. Reform students didn't know almost anything about how to do Jewish, how to light Shabbat candles, why a non-kosher meal would be offensive to the other more observant Jews in the building. They would get into fights on campus with other students, but also with some of their professors. 
They felt as if their professors were being anti-Semitic. Or was it anti-Zionist? They weren't sure of the difference. Swastikas would appear on lockers and graffiti, on the Chabad, on campus. A swastika in the boys' bathroom made of feces on the ground on UCSD made the news. Our own Hillel was vandalized with, the Nazis were great. Students were in my office in tears weekly, sometimes daily, especially during COVID, it was bad. Why, Rabbi, they would ask. How do we start engaging in a conversation about it with them? I know nothing. Where do I start to learn about Israel? Or the worst response of all, who cares about Israel, Rabbi? America's great. The thing is, you can come at me with Hartman has a good curriculum, or this book, or that book, but the issue is bigger than that. There needs to be reinforcement at home. By the way, in the end, I put together a class with the help of Hillel International, and to my surprise, not only was it packed, but non-Jewish students attended too. They came to the local Hillel on campus to hear a Jewish point of view about Israel. The more I started to teach, the more I realized they know nothing. I was starting from absolute scratch. They were angry at many topics. We learned about women of the wall, for example. They were upset that there was a separation at the Kotel to begin with, not realizing there is a tradition that is still vastly popular in the Jewish world in almost every traditional synagogue, or that certain cities in Jerusalem and other parts of the country were closed on Shabbat. They didn't even know why that would have to be. I quickly learned what I already knew, which is that these students were only looking at the world through an American Jewish reform lens that was hardly infused with much understanding of other ways of celebrating Judaism at all. They didn't know anything about tradition to be able to see what the fight in Israel when it comes to the religious sphere was really about. They needed to understand their religion first before they could engage with that hot topic. There were attending the conversation from their own Gen Z perspective. The worst of all, they equated the Israeli-Palestinian issue with American history. That the way we treated the Native Americans when we stole the land from their hands, or the history of slavery in America is the same thing as what's going on in Israel now, and it is not. You know, when I first applied to HUC, there were three options back then. You could write an essay on God, on Torah, or on Israel. I chose to write about Israel. But before I submitted the essay, I decided to send it over to one of my friends who was an HUC ordained rabbi, and she quickly discouraged me and told me not to speak about Israel in my admissions essay. I was so confused. Why, I asked. Because Israel is a controversial issue, she said. But I'm talking about Am Yisrael, the people of Israel. I'm not getting into politics. She said, Tarlin, I don't care. Talk about God. That's less controversial. Just don't talk about Israel. And of course I listened because, well, I wanted to get in. And once I got in, I got what she was talking about. During my time at HUC on both LA and New York campuses, I had a hard time talking about Israel. I remember on the LA campus when I was a student and Intifada had broke out the week I happened to be leading tefillah. So I brought the Israeli flag and the Beit Midrash, but I was asked to take it out. 
One of the rabbis, Zichrono Livracha, told me that when he walked into services and saw the flag, he thought it was Yom Ma'ut, Israeli Independence Day. I said I wanted it here because I want to talk about Israel. He said no. And then I had to take it out, and so I did. And that was the end of that because I was in my 20s and young, and I didn't argue. I told my Persian friends that story, and they said, wait a minute. They don't already have an Israeli flag in the room where you pray? It was a good question. And in New York, it was the same, but different. In one class, I remembered sharing that when my grandfather died, it was during my year in Israel. And my dad called me to tell me that they were going to bury him right away and that it didn't make sense for me to jump on a flight back home because I wasn't going to make it in time anyways. He said to me, the best thing you can do is just go to the hotel. Knowing your grandfather, he's probably already there by now. And so I did. I sat at the hotel all day in the hot July sun, and a woman and her child came and sat next to me. The woman was praying, but after a while, her son got restless and said, "New, can we go? And I'll never forget how she responded to him. She said, do you know where we are? You can pray and ask for anything that you want, anything that's in your heart, and God will hear you. When I shared that story in class at HUC, I got snickered at. I guess I still don't know completely why I was called here today. I think in many ways, especially as a student at HUC, I felt that my kind of Judaism was seen as primitive by others in my class. I talk about God. What is that? I talk about Israel. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Israel is our home. It is our haven. And it sucks that it takes anti-Semitism for us to realize that. Maybe it's because I'm first-generation immigrant and so many of my students have been here for generations that they forget what is already in my DNA by default for what my parents and grandparents went through. But Israel is our home, and Israel saves lives. Or another way I've come to explain it. Israel is like your mom. Do you want to live with your mom? Maybe in doses. <laughs> But when your mom needs support, financially or otherwise, isn't it your obligation to give it? And do I always agree with my mom? Certainly not. But do I need to make her look bad in front of strangers? In front of people outside of my family that don't understand my family dynamic that already give me grief for being Jewish? But on the other hand, am I not supposed to criticize my mom? Of course I am but behind closed doors. I don't have one solution for how to engage students because there isn't one solution. I can teach until I am blue in the face in the classroom, but if you don't go over the homework at home, it's as if they learn nothing from me. 
You think I learned about God or my love of Israel from school? Sure, I learned concepts and dates. God knows Dr. Gray drilled those dates in me. But it was my grandmother who taught me about the meaning of God, and it was my family who taught me why Israel matters or how to do Jewish. We are not teaching how to do Judaism, how to love Israel, why Israel matters in the home. Parents need to reinforce the curriculum, and sure, we need to do a better job of creating more curriculum that gives students the tools that will allow them to have a basic understanding and common ground so that when they enter college and the real world, they have a backbone and know where to start the conversation. But none of that matters if you and me snicker at ideas where God is central to Judaism or at different ways of being Jewish. In many ways, we politicized Israel with Herzl. Maybe it's time now to make Israel a spiritual home again, the home of our religion, our spiritual home, or if we don't feel like the way things are going represent us, let's do something about it. Let's talk to mom. But I'm tired of being scared of speaking and of being silent. I'm suffering. And worse than that, my students are suffering from not hearing from me, from us. I'll end with this last story of my time in Israel. I went to a rave. I don't know if you all know what that is. It's like an outdoor, <laughs> an outdoor discotheque, if you will, with my then Israeli boyfriend during my year in Israel, back in my early 20s. Don't judge me now. <laughs> but while we were standing in line to get in, the cops came, as they often do in Israel, to check on us. And they started pushing us back, pushing us so close to one another that in the hot summer sun, I started to feel claustrophobic. And I didn't know how long they would keep us like that. And so I said to my boyfriend, Alex, I'm going to die. And this Israeli guy a complete stranger overhears my comment and looks at me and says, are you Jewish? <laughs> I said, yes, not knowing what he was going to say next. He says, we have been through worse times before. You are not going to die. <laughs> I was moved when I heard that because I realized in that moment that until we don't feel as one people, we're going to stop caring about each other and remember why we all matter. I remember once being asked whether Persian Jews cared about the Holocaust. When I told my family, my great aunt said, what is the meaning of this question? It's as if it happened to us. Another Hillel rabbi once told me as well how surprised he was that on Yom HaShoah, the room is packed with Persian Jews at UCLA. Why is he so surprised? I know it might sound like I'm wrangling, but try to hear what I'm saying. We are all one, one people. Even if we make changes in the religion, beautiful ones, where a female Persian rabbi can stand before you and speak during a historic moment. But no matter the changes, Ashkenazi or Mizrahi or Israeli, we are all one. But just like in any relationship, we have to continue fighting and caring. And more than that, we need to reinforce the learning at home in order to maintain the relationship. Israel is our motherland. We may not live there, but we still have an obligation to our past, to our home, to our history. Until we feel connected, we cannot teach it to our children. Until we decide to do something about it ourselves, we cannot expect our children to understand why it matters.
Thank God, America, even with its rampant anti-Semitism, is still a good place to live. And may it always be, Kenya Hiratson. But I'll never forget what I was taught, that as Jews, we keep moving. And we always pray to the Mizrah. We pray to Jerusalem for a reason, to remember that in times of crisis, which way is the direction of our home? If we don't teach this to our children, to teach them that where, where to go in an emergency, God forbid, what will they do one day in generations to come when they don't know where to turn? But the bottom line, whatever you think, however you feel, continue to speak about Israel and make room for all diverse voices so, so that Israel always matters and remains relevant for all Jews. Because we are all one, and once we acknowledge that, we can get through anything. Because we have been through worse things before. <laughs> it's true. But as long as we stay together, we will surely never die. I'm Yisrael Chai. So my first question to all of you would be, how can we inspire our community members to feel a deeper connection with Israel, even if they have different views on its politics? Can you give us some ideas, practical ideas, about where can we start? What can we do? Uh, I think that um, the connection to other people is the most powerful um, and palpable one. And as I said in my own comments, we have the ability, technology certainly gives it to us in ways that we hadn't been aware of before to connect our members of our congregations, our Hillels, with Jews, certainly in Israel, but around the world. And if our people can see themselves as part of a larger collective, um, I think that is a start. And a, and, a, and a rather simple one to address uh, the concern of, um, that we feel toward the, the attenuating uh, relationships that we have with the Jewish people around the world. Um, I think that we have to get our people to Israel uh, as often as possible. We have to make it affordable for them and we have to make it accessible to them uh, we, we go every year, and I think that uh, lots of people come with lots of preconceived notions, and then you spend 10, 15 days there, and if you really go and meet with people who are going to tell you more than just the, the sites do, uh, then, interestingly enough, just within 10 or 15 days, people's um, uh, notions deepen, and their connections deepen as well. So um, I know that's not easy, it's not affordable, but I think getting people to Israel as often as possible makes a huge difference. Um, talk about an easy question. Uh, you have to talk about it. I think, I, think that's my, I think that's my bottom line. I mean, the Haggadah, the Passover is our original curriculum. You have to talk about it. You know, people don't know why they were named after which Bubby or Zadie or what. I mean, people need to talk about it. So as long as you explain, you know, what your connection is to Israel, it creates a personal relationship. And I think the other reality is, 
whether you vote Trump or Biden, that doesn't represent America for you wholly. And that's the same thing with Israel. I mean, what's going on in politics right now is going to change if we want it to change. And I, I don't only believe that, it's true. The point is, just like in any marriage or relationship, once you stop fighting, you stop caring. And so we need to continue to engage our, our children if we actually believe there's something worth caring about. And I think it really starts with conversation um, and then a, a trip to Israel. Thank you very much. So that was an easy question. We'll go a little bit harder on you. So it has become a norm to criticize Israel by many of us. Don't you think that it creates a feeling that Israel is always doing something wrong? especially for younger people who didn't yet travel to Israel and didn't develop strong bonds with Israel and love for Israel. I, I, this is, I think, a, a central issue to um, everyone here, and, and you could hear through all the different um, words that people have different opinions in this. You know, I, I don't know why, for sure, in, in, indoors, inside Jewish safe spaces, as was just said, we have to be able to talk openly about Israel. And I, I, the problem is, is that even in Jewish spaces, there are many colleagues out there who don't feel the safety to do that. And um, so that's a problem. I, I don't know why, uh, for the good of our own souls and the good of the collective Jewish soul, that we can't have honest conversations outside of our homes um, in ways that describe all the extraordinary, miraculous beauty of our homeland, and also to be able to say out loud without any hate or rancor what it is that we need to do to improve our homeland. I'm not sure why that gives credence to haters who are only uh, uh, manufacturing canards. They're not true anti-Semitic claims. So for us to make believe that talking honestly and open about Israel is going to affirm those who hate us, then we are really being duped because those who are conspiracy theorists are going to perpetuate those theories anyway. In the meanwhile, we can do a lot for ourselves by being open and honest about what we do beautifully and what we need to improve upon. So no, I don't, I don't think that's true. So this is an important question that came from the audience. What is the most important role of American Jews in building pluralism and progressive Judaism in Israel? I want to share a story. Um, I went with a UJA delegation a number of uh, weeks ago to meet with um, leaders of the coalition. Uh, we went into the Knesset and sat down at a large table with Simcha Rothman. Now this was a group of reform rabbis, conservative rabbis, and orthodox rabbis. And Rothman said, um, if you all want rights for reformed Jews in Israel, all of you reformim should simply move to Israel. Now he didn't realize that he was talking to a group of rabbis from across the denominational spectrum, but his point of view was that if we really cared, we would go there. I think more of us do need to make Aliyah so that we can help build up religious pluralism in Israel. But 
That's, that can't be the only answer. Israel's leaders need to pay closer attention to what it is that is important to us. And they need to understand that if they don't, it will have ramifications for Israel's security within the global community. And we have to make, continue to make that clear, which I think we are trying to do through the protests that many of our own have been involved with. What is the hardest question about Israel a young congregant has asked you? How did you answer it? Man, there, I mean, there are constant, as soon as you send a kid off to the college campus, the questions come in harder and harder. Uh, what I'm most uh, troubled by and want to do my best to help these kids who were, as I said up there, and we all have complicity in this, or have been ill-prepared for the college campus, is they get presented with a bunch of facts that have been really well put together uh, with a marketing scheme that's pretty brilliant and a publicity scheme that's equally as brilliant. And they don't know what to say, so I always say to them, you know, ask one question, just sort of take a breath and ask one question before you get into it. Do you so-and-so believe that Israel has a legitimate right to exist where it is in its current phase? Matt, stop there. And if the person says, yes, of course I do, but here's what I want to say, then good, sit down and have a conversation. If someone says, no, but, I walk away. Because I think that that's a red line. And uh, we can go on and on here about how unequally we are treated as it relates to the warts and wrinkles that we have versus other countries and how we're held to account in a different way. So I don't want to put my kids in a situation where they're in a conversation that will go nowhere, um, but it is totally open to have a conversation with someone who believes in the legitimacy of Israel but just wants to talk through its policy. question for all of you, if you can answer that. Um, can you suggest any strategies or initiatives to help our youth develop a nuanced understanding of Israel and Zionism in real time now? I think it would be fantastic if our youth were exposed to different ways of doing Jewish. I think one of the things that I, one of the things that I was always surprised about was that even you know when we would go to different synagogues to learn about different ways of being Jewish, a lot of the synagogues were Ashkenazi synagogues that learned things from their local church. And I used to always think to myself, why don't they go to the local Sephardic synagogue? Or, or I don't know, learn different ways how the same song can be sang differently, or the same Avinu Malkinu can have a totally different meaning. Because we don't we, we're not victims, you know, in the same way. We, we weren't, you know, as Rabbi Hoffman once taught me, we, you know, Christ, Jews that were living under the, the cross were really exposed to monks, and they really, they, the way that Judaism came alive for them was we suffer, you know, I think about Fiddler on the Roof, oh, we suffer, you know? And then for us, I mean, we're, we're yelling at God for on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We're like saying, hey, dude, you brought me into this world. Help me out over here. You know, I'm, I'm two steps forward. I'm fasting. Where are you? I, I think that, that the only way that we're going to be strong is if we learn different ways of doing Jewish. And that's how we're going to feel connected to Israel. And I'll say something else that was really crazy for me to hear. I had a, a rabbi um, from the conservative movement tell me that he feels more at home in Germany than he does in Israel. And 
I kind of get it. And it also saddens me. And I think that it's because there's something happens when Jews come together, it comes, it manifests differently, you know, and, and I think we're kind of, we got the same Facebook feed and the same Instagram feed with the same kind of people. We have to start exposing ourselves to different ways of doing Jewish, and then we can understand what happens when Jews from all over the world come together to make Israelis. That's another issue we'll talk about. Later. I am embarrassed to uh, say the, the opposite of what that rabbi said, um, and I please excuse the self-indulgence, but it was one of the more thrilling moments. My son just came home from spending a year on your course, and I uh, was a baseball player and got see that got chosen to play to pitch for the Israeli national team in Europe, uh, in Germany. So my wife and I spent ridiculous amounts of money to go see him. And, um, and I've only been to Germany three times for very quick trips. And I'm still, because my dad was barely born here, still walk through Germany with uh, such an irrational paranoia. Um, so that's just the opposite of that. But what I say, I say all that to lead to what I think is one of our most serious problems is that we are so good. I remember um, those of us who went to the New York school together and were in uh, Leonard Kravitz's class. Remember he used to say to us amongst all the isms that Kravitz had would be like, Kinderlach, don't worry, when your pews are empty, something horrible will happen to the Jews and they'll fill right up. And, um, and he used to sort of you know, laugh at it. But years later, I realized the really sad point he was making is that we are really good at showing up when there's a horrible thing that happens to a, a synagogue in Pittsburgh and it was horrific and Poway and, and everything else that it was, Charlie Citron Walker. Uh, but a week later, we're back to 200 people. We had a thousand who show up that night. So I think what's happening is that we have no clue what we're defending. And we are gonna have to help our people understand what Shabbat is about and what celebrating the holy days are about. Not the holy days, the holidays, the holy days they come to. And, and what the vibrancy of Jewish life is because nothing is worse than defending an identity that is misunderstood. And I think our people walk around um, very much in confusion, ambiguous and ambivalent about their Jewish identities. And you try to put Israel in the mix and yeah, they'll show up when Israel's in trouble, but they'll go back home the next week. And we have to bolster the Jewish identity if we have any shot of bolstering Israel. Thank you very much. There are so many questions that it's asked pretty much the same question in a different wording. So why have we so failed to measure up in the communication work regarding Israel and Palestinians? And as to continue this on the same note, some of you want open discussion about the errors of Israel. Do you also want to talk as openly about the Palestinian errors in the past years in the history? Yeah, I, I, why would we not talk as openly as about one as we would about the other? I, I've found it, in my own interfaith dialogue work that that Christian communities, and we know that there are a number of Christian denominations that you know every two years they pass an overture in their general assembly, which we all you know. Are, are very upset about for the right reasons. But I've found that in conversations with such communities, the more open that I can be about how I wrestle with Israel's shortcomings, the, the more they see me as, as, a, as a human being who loves his homeland, 
um, and struggles um, with, its, with its failings in an effort to build it up and make it stronger. By the same token, they need to know all of the challenges that Israel faces, and those are tied to the Palestinian leadership's own shortcomings. We should be open about both. And, and why are we hiding because the PR machine doesn't work? And um, I, I've always been surprised when we bring groups that you, know, you, you meet with the Israeli government officials who are in charge of those kinds of propaganda machines, if we call them to be deriding, they're horrible at it. And um, I think the Palestinian structure has done a really good job at selling their narrative. And we've done a pretty loud, I don't mean us, but I mean at writ large, we've done a lousy job at that. And, but it doesn't mean that we should stop being truthful with ourselves, about ourselves, with people with whom we're in dialogue, just because the machine's not working. I just, I wanna say, I agree. And I might be the last generation that knows what ditto means, but ditto. And, and I'll say, I'll say, you know, also as a LaFell fellow, um, we, one of the things that really I struggled with was we would go and we'd, we'd listen to a, you know, an Israeli general, and then we'd, we'd drive and then we'd hear the Palestinian side, and then we'd drive and then we'd hear the Israeli side, and then we'd drive somewhere else and we'd hear the Palestinian side. And I would always say, why can't we put everybody in one room? I wanna know what the holes are in everybody's argument. And remember, everybody has their own perspectives. Both sides don't always see the truth as it is. And the only way that we can really understand how to get to the bottom of this is if we hear both sides and really understand the other side. I mean, that's a, that's a Hillel Shammai tenet, to understand the other side before you put forth your own argument, right? And I, and I listen, I was saying this to someone else the other day, unless we enjoy this vicious cycle, we're gonna to have to figure out a way to have a discussion and, and, and move forward to make this world better for our future kids. The end. So we have here questions for another two hours of conversation and we hope the conversation will continue. But as we conclude our plan, we would like again to thank to all of who organized this event. We would like to thank Rabbi Joshua Davidson, Rabbi Matthew Gillers, Rabbi Karen Rabitzadeh. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your insight with all of us today.